Hello, and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox. And I'm Lori Sox. And this episode is the first of a two-part conversation about physical therapy. Joining us via Skype is Natalie Spateri, really a gifted physical therapist who was Liam's primary physical therapist during his early intervention time. And in this episode, we're going to concentrate on what is physical therapy, what is early intervention therapy, and what can we expect from these services that happen prior to our children turning school age. Natalie, thanks for for being on our podcast. I'm happy to be here to talk to you guys. Thank you for having me. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself. So I've been a physical therapist for almost 11 years now, and I've been working in pediatrics for 10 years. Over the years, I also became uh, what you call in the physical therapy world a board-certified specialist in pediatric physical therapy. And I did that because I really care about working with pediatric patients and really making sure I keep up with my um, continuing education. So I give my patients the most up-to-date, you know, treatments. And um, I've also had experience working initially in early intervention. So working with patients, I don't want to say babies that are zero to three years old in their homes. And then I also have experience working in an outpatient setting with zero to 18-year-olds. And now I work in a school-based setting, working with three-year-olds up until 21-year-olds. Natalie, can you just define for us, what is physical therapy? So physical therapy is therapy that focuses on what we call gross motor. So focusing on big body movements. So in the pediatric world, that's working on helping a child move better in terms of either helping them crawl, helping them learn how to sit, helping them learn how to use their big muscles to move their body in the world. So the physical therapist, you know, comes and works with the family and teaches the family on how to change this kiddo's world around to get the most out of them and help them learn and progress their milestones and use their body in a way to help them move around. So that zero to three may be you helping them approach obstacles in the household. But then when you go into the sector of of education with the three-year-olds on, you're working on them working their way around school, I guess. Yeah. When you you hit the school-based age, a lot of it becomes accessing big environments. So walking outside, walking around a classroom, working around obstacles. And also we call it a dynamic environment where now you're not in a house where you control all the variables. Now you're where there's other students around, there's balls, there's playground equipment, there's a lot of movement happening. And so at school-based, you, you do a lot of treatment outside and making sure that student is safe, as uh, safe getting around their environment with as little restrictions as possible. And that's a really big window to go from uh, zero to, you said 20, 21, right? That's that would, that's... For school, that's three to 21. Yeah. In school, like um, students with special needs can receive services up until they turn 22. So on the day they turn 22, then services would end. And because we live in California, our experience was that we receive services through regional center 
that um, took services over from birth till three years old. But at three years old, then services were received from the school district. And you've actually worked through regional center and now through the school district. Especially since I started in early intervention and then went to school base, it was nice to have that kind of flow because I knew what all these kiddos had come from and what their experience is and now how it would be different coming into a school environment. And as an early intervention physical therapist, what do you feel is the advantage of, of having early intervention with physical therapy? The zero to three age period is so critical because that's when so much growth is happening physically, but also cognitively. And you really want to make sure you hit this window and try to teach them as much as possible because that's when they will learn the most. And, you know, for, for we, I have seen kiddos that come from outside the country that didn't receive these services. And you see such a big difference if they come into school, never getting therapies, um, how much delay there is. So it's a critical period for them to learn the gross motor skills that PT provides, but then also the rest of the team, how occupational therapy provides fine motor and then speech. And then also that early interventionist is also very key to do the play-based side of things. And because they all work together to work on all that development, that's very crucial during the zero to three-year-old period. If I remember correctly, one of the first things that, and actually I think it was the reason that you, we were approved to get the physical therapy uh, from you in early intervention was that Liam wasn't rolling over. That was one of the, the milestones that were challenging him. That he, and then you came in to help him to learn to roll over. Yeah, and then from my experience in early intervention, you know, Liam just being a preemie also would have qualified him because he would have been delayed from the start because he was so premature. And now, I mean, I'm not sure how it is now, but when I was treating an early intervention, pediatricians and even straight from the hospital, if they have a premature patient or, you know, maybe somebody with a known syndrome like Liam with Down syndrome or any kind of genetic syndrome that I, I, even at the hospital, they get the ball rolling to start the referral process so they can get services as soon as possible. That's one way that I saw a lot of my my pediatric patients was they got referred straight from the hospital or I got some later, like maybe like Liam, if there you start noticing delays and milestones and then they get the referral for therapies in the home. And now you do, as far as any of the, the physical challenges that you help children with, it's a big range of different delays and challenges. But as this is a podcast gearing towards our experience with Down syndrome, what is your experience with Down syndrome, kids with Down syndrome, and some of the physical challenges that they endure. And then also, if you could tell, you know, a little bit about how parents and caregivers can support those challenges and help the child get strong. So the biggest thing, because kiddos with Down syndrome were the big, my biggest population for my in-home therapies when I did early intervention. And the, the biggest hurdle that you have with a patient with Down syndrome is their muscle tone. When, um, you know, you have low muscle tone, their body has to work that much harder to move. And it was muscle tone is the main thing and also motor learning. So, you know, somebody's ability to learn a new skill. Um, those are the two main things that, you know, cause delays with kiddos with Down syndrome. And, I, there was a huge range, even, you know, even just looking at my patients with Down syndrome, there was a very big range of when they would reach milestones. But I guess if you, if you just look, I'm trying to think if you, every, every milestone has different things they need to work on, but the key is to 
you have to work out a lot more than other kiddos that don't have low muscle tone. So, you know, for Liam, you know, we did a lot of stuff on his stomach, you know, more than I would make another kiddo do that didn't have low muscle tone because we really had to push him to get his core stronger to be able to move to the next milestone. And also on the motor learning, um, there's a lot of repetition involved because it would take um, kiddos with Down syndrome a little bit longer to acquire a new skill, a little bit more practice. And so it was a lot of repetition and a lot of talking to you and Steven about what do you do in your daily day to continue to have Liam working almost all day long. Um, that's one thing I try to do with all my patients. I try not to overwhelm and give you a bunch of homework assignments. I mostly try to say, okay, you know, well, Liam is sitting up for meals. This is how you can make it harder for him. Or, you know, Liam is playing with a sister, Sophia. Here are some ways you can position him during that playtime. Um, or, you know, Liam is standing this way. Here's different ways you can challenge his standing. So I think the main advice is that you do kind of have to incorporate any activity throughout the entire day that you can't really just let them relax that much, unfortunately. And I think you guys remember that, how much Liam, how busy he was all week with all the therapies. Yeah, he had a lot of a lot of therapies. I remember talking to you early on about muscle uh, tone and low tone when it comes to Down syndrome. And, and in my mind, I always thought when you want to tone, you would just work out and then great, you're, you, you tone your muscles. But you kind of expressed to me the importance of just with Liam, it wasn't something that was just going to go away. It was something that he he needed to work on all the time and more than and than than typical kids to then try to raise that bar. But it was going to be there. He just had to try to overcome overcome it as much as he could. Is that correct? Yeah, because as you know, our our resting state of our muscles, his was a little bit looser. You know, kiddos with Down syndrome have a little bit looser resting state, so they have to kind of get over that hurdle and then also work on getting stronger like any other kiddo would to have to learn a skill. But that, let me ask you, because I know tone is, um, low, low tone is something that, you know, we heard uh, a lot about when Liam was first born and, you know, in, in any report or any test that's done on him, can you work hard to overcome or lessen its effect? Or Yeah, you can't necessarily like fix like or cure low tone, but you, in order to lessen its effects, yeah, that's a good way to put it, is that you do have to make sure to continue working out and strengthening to minimize the effects that low tone has on somebody's body. So, you know, if somebody, for example, like anybody with loose joints, you know, if they're, you know, they have lax joints, if they never work on that, they're going to have pain. But if they work on their strength, maybe they'll minimize their pain, but they're always still going to have those loose joints. Let's say Liam, you know, we, you know, he wanted to do a running program. He's like, okay, well, Liam, we got to really make sure we keep you strong because we don't want you to get injured. And just like anybody taking on any new activity, you got to maintain your body if you want to make sure to do the activity safely and, you know, continue growing. That makes sense. And also coming with low tone, is, is there also, uh, some inherent, uh, extra flexibility or, or looseness in, in joints and ligaments? Is that something or is that separate? I'd have to look up specifically. I can't remember if like if kiddos with Down syndrome also have the loose joints, but they, you do have, you know, the, everything is looser. So I think, yeah, they definitely kiddos with Down syndrome are more flexible. And I think that has to do with the low tone as well. So yeah, and that's why you don't, you basically want to keep strengthening to also, you know, help movement, but also you don't want them to get injured either. Yes. And, and walking, I know walking's a really big deal 
uh, for for parents. I know that the the milestone came uh, later for Liam than it did for Sophia. Uh, can you can you talk a, a little bit about walking as it pertains to physical therapy and Down syndrome? Yeah, and when I when I was looking, I was doing some research before I started talking to you guys. Looking at you know for parents of kids with Down syndrome, I want to always say you know try not to look at the you know the age that a kiddo should be walking, but look at the progression of his milestones. So you know, with Liam, be like, you know, every time he did a new milestone, okay, he rolled. All right, well, now we're going to start working on sitting. Okay, sitting, let's get to crawling. And it was always moving on to the next step. Uh, walking was always the biggest variability I had with my kiddos with Down syndrome. The the most common period you see kiddos with Down syndrome start walking, I think the earliest I've seen is around 18 months. And then I've unfortunately seen kiddos that start school that are still not walking. So they're over three years old and still haven't achieved that walking milestone. So it is a big range, though I have noticed that the ones that aren't walking by the time they are three, they may not have received as much therapy or as efficient physical therapy as kiddos that started walking earlier. But there's also degrees of muscle tone as well. Some of my kiddos with Down syndrome have much lower muscle tone than other ones, which leads to a little bit of delays because we we have to work that much more on their strength and it takes longer for them to get strong enough to be able to sustain that walking position. Well, personally, just to kind of uh, give parents out there an idea, sometimes we all, we want these benchmarks. I mean, that's something tip, uh, that typical parents do as well as they look at other kids and say, oh, how's my kid line up with that kid? Well, Liam, uh, Sophia, sorry, our typical child started walking about 13 months, 14 months, I believe. And Liam, I think he was about 25, 26 months. So if you think about it, it was about double the time. And you're saying that's probably about right in the middle of, of your experience with, with children with Down syndrome. And Liam had uh, PT even in the NICU, like from the second week of, of life. So uh, I think just to keep perspective how parents are, you know, how parents always wonder, how's the how, how is this going for me? How's this going for my child? That's something to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. And I also researched, you know, before on um, the National Down Syndrome Society, so NDSS.org, and um, about I looked up early intervention on there, and they even have a little grid with the milestones, and it's even a huge range on this page where they write for walking alone, the range is one to four years old, which is not super helpful for other people. But yeah, I think talking to other families like yourselves for people to get an idea when their kiddo started walking would be helpful. And also, you know, helping families, you know, even before that, you know, if you if you meet somebody whose child isn't walking yet, when you say like, well, are they crawling? Because whatever age somebody starts crawling gives an indication of, you know, how much longer will it take for them to start walking. What is that window, Natalie, from crawling to walking typically? So like in, in a typical kiddo, right, they start crawling around eight months and then they start walking around 12 to 18 months. So it's, a, I would say it's about four to six months um, between crawling and independent walking in a typical kiddo. So I would say maybe six to eight months in a kiddo with Down syndrome. It was definitely, I think, a shorter period between crawling and walking than it was between, you know, before they started crawling. Does that make sense? Once they started crawling, their core starts getting stronger faster. And then you start really pushing towards walking. Yeah. So like if we found that Liam was crawling about it took him about twice as long to learn that in comparative to our typical child, Sophia. Uh, then when he starts walking, it may not be twice as long or, or that gap in between crawling and walking may be shorter than you've seen, than maybe shorter. Yeah. If I meet a kiddo and let's say they're almost two years old and they're not crawling yet, 
then it's going to make me think, okay, we're, we have a lot to work on. If I'm this kiddo is starting to crawl at two years old, then they may not be walking until after three years old, because I, I feel like I, we're already dealing with a lot of low tone and delays at this point. It's going to take a lot longer. So for a parent to, you know, understand that, uh, to really focus on the next milestone versus, you know, if their kid's not crawling, but they're thinking about walking, they really have to focus on the crawling because it's not They're not going to get to walking unless they push the crawling. That's something to really think about as a parent too, because you, you do always want, you want this to happen and you just have to be patient and understand that it's not about walking. It's about each step toward there. And that's going to be true for the rest of your life. And they all, all my kiddos in early intervention, they did, you know, they did eventually almost, I don't, I don't think any of my early intervention patients um, were not walking. They all were walking by the time they were graduated from early intervention with me anyways. And that's a, that's a good segue to my next question, because you had mentioned that the early intervention and the lack of early intervention has an impact. So for those parents who didn't maybe receive the early interventions for their child, like the physical therapy earlier interventions, and their child is delayed in the crawling and the walking, what are some of the things we can say to the parents to give them the power to have input? If they're not getting physical therapy, I really push, even as, you know, as because now I'm in school and I meet parents that their kid didn't get therapy, I push these parents to really bother their pediatricians. Their pediatricians are the gatekeepers and they really should be advocating for their patients. And um, if they haven't gotten early intervention, then they have to push that pediatrician to get a referral out to at least get outpatient support, you know, get find somewhere that you can at least take your child for physical therapy if there's no if there's too much red tape or too much work to even get early intervention but to push that pediatrician to figure out how you can get outpatient services and for parents who already have a pt for their child what should they look for in this person and also what should they do if they don't feel like it's a great fit or if they're not doing the job that they feel like should be done I would tell parents first, if you have a PT already, really make sure that physical therapist is talking to you about your concerns and incorporating you in all the decision making. Suppose a parent like you guys, you you have a physical therapist that comes and you're trying to decide, is this person helping you know Liam as much as possible? And as, as we had talked about, I was maybe the third physical therapist or second that met you because the ones before me, you know, were not working as well with you guys as a family unit, because if that therapist is not considering your needs as a family and, you know, Liam's, you're not Liam, but you're, you know, that child's needs in the home and not taking into consideration what your life is like and what his needs are going to be, then it's not going to be a good fit and they may not help you reach the goals that you need to reach. Um, that's always key that the, the therapist talks to you first and incorporates all your concerns and doesn't ignore what you want Liam or your child to achieve. Now, when we talk about early intervention, in California, we go through the regional center. But if you live in another state, where do you go to find these therapies? Across the board, it's called early intervention everywhere. So if you say early intervention in other states, they'll know what you're talking about. But there are early intervention services that should be provided. Um, and the somebody's pediatrician, they, they should be well-versed in getting referrals to early intervention services. Um, I don't know if people know, like, there's a law, it's called IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, 
And that is a federal law that mandates that states have to provide early intervention services. So it's a right. And if they're, if they're having trouble uh, getting their pediatrician to advocate for them, is there, is they, then they would, you would just suggest that then they reach out. Yeah, I would say the best thing is probably Google early intervention in your county, wherever you live, say early intervention, Los Angeles County or wherever, and something should pop up about the county services for early intervention. That's the best thing. I say Google early intervention and in whatever county you're in. But that's the worst case. Best case scenario is you, your pediatrician supports you and advocates for you and your child and, and helps you get on that road. Yeah. And especially suppose you find out before you're, you know, you're pregnant and you find out before your child's born that they have Down syndrome and you find that pediatrician before your child's born that you should maybe already get, you can get the ball rolling before they arrive and start, make sure that pediatrician is aware about the diagnosis and about the referrals that you're going to be asking for. And so they can help you ahead of time. Cause I think that's the big thing I've noticed is when I see kiddos and they, you know, discharged and that nobody talked to them about it. And I'm seeing them now as a 10 month old and no one, you know, they were very late to get the referrals. So I would recommend that as well. Well, we did not know Liam had Down syndrome until 10 days after he was born. And then when we did find out, that was one of the first things that was brought to our attention was regional center. That's what was told us. So I think having that actual physical piece of paper or diagnosis of Down syndrome, it does open a door. At least the medical professionals should know, hey, this information needs to get to the parents. Which honestly is something that we've talked about before. That That's, the, that's a good side of you know, some of our challenges that we had were just, we had a doctor who had really pushed, pushed us to get testing that we didn't want to get done. And, um, and that always wasn't left an uneasy feeling with us. Why this, why this pressure, why this negative point of view that was really put on us. But I think that's a really great gift to be given is that, that yes, you, you could start to line things up for yourself and your child. And that's, that's actually, I'm, I have to call it cause that's a great m- moment for me of, I guess like an, an aha, aha moment <laughs> where I, I go, Oh, okay. Well, I don't, and some of that pressure is taken off of, you know, yeah, wow. like, do, do you want to know, uh, why do you want to know the, the, the down syndrome diagnosis early? You know, that there's reasons for it. Right. And sometimes you go, well, it's not going to matter either way. If I know that the child has down syndrome or not, to continue this pregnancy, right? That's one way to look at it. But the other way is you may want this information. this information so you can start setting things up. Yeah, you can, it empowers you. That's that's great because it's not always presented like that. Both pregnancies, it was presented in a different way to me. But that is a that's a great gift that parents can have is when you have the diagnosis. Thank you, Natalie, that you can start to line up and make sure that your child is taken care of. Which I, I absolutely love that. And Natalie, you had talked a bit about walking, but is there anything you wanted to add about it? Because I know that's a big concern for parents. Um, maybe you can kind of talk about early intervention therapies and, and, and how it pertains to walking. For families that are receiving early intervention, I would say once the big thing to push, you know, walking in your home, but then, you know, once somebody starts walking, I always encourage let's move out of the home because just like any other kiddo, Down syndrome or no Down syndrome, you know, you're not just in your house 100% of the time. So I encourage families to talk to their therapist, make sure you go to the park, make sure you're doing services outside of the home, because that is, you know, the child's environment is not just the house. And I think, you know, we took Liam to the park almost every session after he was walking. 
and really pushed walking outside because that's how you start working on balance. I think we took him before he was walking. Once he was yeah. cruising along furniture, we forced him to start walking on grass outside. Yeah, walking. Walking is a huge deal. And just because I know sometimes it can really wear on you and you can get discouraged that your child's not maybe reaching the milestone or will they reach this milestone? So I think whatever we can say that could support, like what can they do at home? That's a, like what are some of the exercises or toys or things they can do? If you want to, if you want to address crawling and then walking, that would be great. Okay. And first I can also tell you a resource. I never use it because I'm a physical therapist, but there is a book that somebody released. um, A physical therapist wrote it about, gross motor skills and down syndrome. And a a lot of PTs use it and a lot of parents do. So I recommend parents if they're not getting any therapies to this book is a very, it's for parents and therapists. And I think it's a good way to have pictures and examples that could talk about a lot more than I could say here. I'll say some here, but it's called gross motor skills in children with down syndrome. I just looked, it's on Amazon, but I think that'd be a great resource for parents. Yeah, I can go ahead and I'll put a link of that down in the show notes uh, for everyone. That'd be nice. And another good resource now because of social media is Instagram that my initial plan was to push an Instagram showing, um, you know, how to work on physical therapy activities. It's just hard in the physical therapy realm because you can't really film a lot of your patients. So I haven't been able to do that, but I've learned that if you, there's a lot of families that post about their children with down syndrome, it, it could be good and bad because good. Yes. You can see other kids with down syndrome, but then you're starting the comparison game and that could be, you know, for some families, they don't want to be in that comparison realm, but um, it can help you connect with other families with Down syndrome. And a lot of physical therapists are posting interventions on Instagram. So I always encourage my families to search, you know, hashtag, you can write this down, hashtag Petty PT, P-E-D-I-P-T. And anybody that hashtags that is posting pediatric physical therapy ideas. And, and also for OT, petty OT, those people are sharing occupational therapy ideas. To go back to your question about crawling, I mean, I'm always a fan of couch cushion. Do you remember? I always work on couch cushion and exercise balls um, to get it. If you're just working on tummy time, getting your kiddo's face off the floor is key. Nobody, if somebody has is weak and has a hard time holding themselves up, they're not going to be happy just doing tummy time right on the floor. I did a lot of activities holding um, kids on a ball on their stomach, you know, and you add the bouncing, the moving, and also now the world, they're more eye level versus looking at the floor. That helps, you know, work on a lot of neck and back strength. And then sitting on an exercise ball is the next step, working on their core strength. Um, Those are the big things I would do to progress Uh, to go towards crawling. And the same thing goes for the couch cushion, you know, on their stomach on a couch cushion, sitting on a couch cushion, because it's a cushy surface that you can move around. All those are really good things that you can easily do in your home to work on their core strength. And when you say move, when you say move around, like you're putting, putting the child on the couch cushion, is that so that just to kind of give them some relief, make them feel like they are looking up a bit so that they don't, their just face just isn't in the ground the whole time and they're just upset about it? Yeah. So like if they're on their stomach, um, their knees are on the floor and their, their hips are on the couch cushion. You know, if you're leaning up on something, so their elbows and their trunk are on the couch cushion. And, and then their knees are on the floor. That way they're looking up a little bit more and they're not, their whole body isn't just parallel with the floor. And it's also a cushier 
than the floor. And then also sitting them, you know, if you're holding your child in sitting on a couch cushion, it's easier to bounce them a little bit than just bouncing them on a floor. And it's a, if you don't have an exercise ball, then, you know, a couch cushion is the next best thing that you can try to have some movement in terms of bouncing, leaning them forward, backwards, left and right. All these movements are encouraging, you know, their trunk muscles to kick in, to work on their, you know, holding their body in the middle. And Natalie, you have a newborn. Yes, I have a, what I'm saying, a four month old. <laughs> I was trying to think, how old is he? How does how does that affect your your tummy time? Well, you know, I I would want to try for so long, you know, to do all the things I do with my patients to try it on my own kiddo, and yet he is actually working all day long because of me. And my husband's an occupational therapist, and so he doesn't get any breaks either because we're both working on everything too. <laughs> but I am trying to just incorporate into our day and not make it seem like it's a lot of work for him. Well, Natalie, it has been such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for having me. Everyone stick around because our listeners are going to hear what you have to say about PT in the school setting on our next episode, which will follow this one. It's uh, part two of our physical therapy conversation. We'll see you there. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Come and